Hey everybody and welcome to the second session of my series called Simple Steps to Studying the Bible. We're looking today at Acts 3 verses 12 to 26. Peter preaches in the temple. Now let's review quickly last week's reading. We looked at Peter and John as they were headed to the three o'clock prayer time at the temple when they came across a lame man sitting outside the beautiful gate. Well, sensing there was a prompting from the Holy Spirit, Peter stopped. He asked the man to look at them and then commanded, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Peter then extended his right hand and the man stood, began to shout and run in praise uh, of God. And then the man headed into the temple and was clinging with joy to Peter and John as this crowd gathered around in amazement. You know, we talked last week about how we often find ourselves outside that beautiful gate needing our own healing, sometimes a physical one, but often an emotional, mental, or spiritual one. We sometimes need somebody to extend that right hand of Christian fellowship to us and help us to move forward. And then often we're the one with a prompting to lean in, (coughs) to listen, and to really see someone who needs our own right hand. Well, I hope that last week you had an opportunity to accept a prompting of the Holy Spirit and you extended the right hand to somebody. Well, I want us to look at our reading for today. We are once again going to use the three simple steps for studying the Bible, observation, interpretation, and application. Now, I don't know if you already have taken the opportunity to do your own observation of our passage today, Acts 3, 12 to 26, but if not, please do so now. So take a pause and get your Bible out and read those passages and become curious about what you're reading. Begin to ask yourself questions about them. You can do this verse by verse, or you can chunk those verses and do a few at a time. And so just press pause, take time to do that, and then come back because I will be right here. So I hope you've had the time to make those observations about the scripture. And so now we are going to move on to the interpretation portion. So what I do is I go through this passage and I ask my own curious questions. I make comments. I observe what I've read. And then I start digging in. I start finding answers to my questions. Often my questions get answered as I continue to read, but sometimes Uh, They're not, and I begin to then do a deep dive into some resources. I use some in different interpretations. I use a cultural history book, or I look at study Bibles. I go to reference guides. I look up words that are in Greek or Hebrew, depending on whether I'm reading Old Testament or New Testament. So I have done that, and now I want us to go back and look at what happened in verse 11 as we begin to interpret. Remember, the healed man was now holding on to Peter and John. Now, since he could walk, it wasn't for support. He was holding on to them out of gratitude. 
maybe he wanted to feel that connection to the ones who facilitated the healing. And so now a crowd has gathered around as the people ran amazed into the temple. And so Peter now has an opportunity for a divine appointment. Let's look at verse 12. Peter saw his opportunity and addressed the crowd. People of Israel, he said, what is so surprising about this? And why staring us as though we had made this man walk by our own power of godliness? So Peter recognized he had a divine appointment and he took advantage of it. See, that's another way of saying his spiritual radar was turned on and it was tuned into the Holy Spirit. People of Israel in some versions reads fellow Israelites. And the King James Version says men of Israel. Well, his audience was clearly Jewish men. Let's remember that the gospel, this gospel message is going to the Jews first. So it is very important for Peter to take this opportunity of a divine appointment to talk to these Jewish men. And all of them are staring at him. Remember, they were amazed. And I'm sure that many of them were wanting an accounting as to what must have Peter and John been done to take on this healing power. They were assuming that he, they did the healing in their own power. And so Peter asked them, why are you so amazed? Amazed uh, in the Greek means they were continually wondering, marveling, being struck with astonishment. Now, Peter knew that they had seen Jesus do miracles. And so he wants to connect this miracle with the ones Jesus had performed. So he's telling them, why are you so amazed? You saw Jesus do miracles also. Now, I want us to pause here and let's revisit the chronology of events. And I want us to notice how the providence of God was working behind the scenes, going before Peter and John and the lame man. First, the miracle was timed for a large crowd entering the temple at the three o'clock prayer time. Next, number two, God led Peter to fix his gaze on a beggar he had doubtless passed many times before. Number three, he brought about a visual miracle of healing a leg along with this, these cries of joy and celebration. Number four, then, there is the drawing of the crowd around Peter and John as this healed man was clinging to them. If the man had run off into the temple ground, which was, by the way, the size of several football fields, the crowds would not have stayed nearby. And then number five, finally, God worked in Peter to sense the moment, to know it was time to address the crowd. So this timing is very important. So let's see how Peter will use his words for good as he faces this group of men who did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They had been guilty of having Jesus arrested. But at the same time, they were faithful Jews just as Peter had been. So will he further alienate them? Will he lambast them? Will he sugarcoat a very difficult topic? Or will he serve up a sandwich? 
And this is called the sandwich technique. I want us to look at the three steps to the sandwich technique, and I want us to see how Peter chose to use this. First, you, in a sandwich technique, you begin with a compliment or a, a positive statement to someone. Number two, you go to the meat of the matter. And number three, you end with a positive conclusion or a way forward. And so I want us to see, to notice how Peter uses this strategy. Verse 13, he begins, For it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of all our ancestors, who has brought glory to his servant Jesus by doing this. So what Peter's doing is he is metaphorically laying out this soft piece of bread as, as he begins to bring all those listeners together under this same family umbrella. He's saying to them, we're in the same family. We're in the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all who worshiped the same God. See, this is a positive statement that he's making. He's acknowledging at the very beginning of his sermon that God is going to get all the glory for this miracle healing. And it's the same God we all have worshiped. Now, notice he says Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the Jews referred to him. Remember, Jacob became Israel, and these are men of Israel. So Peter's reminding them of their past history. It's a shared history. They are men of the covenant, of the scriptures, and of the prophets. So he's brought them all together as one. Well, and then what he does in this beautiful statement is he gets that sermon focused on Jesus. Uh, the focus on the sermon was not on Peter and anything he did for the healing, but it's all about Jesus because he said that this God that we all have worshiped brought glory to Jesus by doing this healing. Well, and then uh, he goes on to talk about a servant, this servant of the Lord who was spoken about in the Hebrew scriptures. See, my servant will act wisely. They knew that the the story in Isaiah, in Isaiah 52, verse 13, my servant will act wisely and will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. So Peter is connecting them to the scripture that they knew. And so he's reminding the audience of what they should already know. Isaiah had prophesied about this servant and Jesus is the servant. So he's pulled them all together with the prophecies they all know as faithful Jews. He's going now to get into the meat of the matter. Watch how he does it. This is the same Jesus whom you handed over and rejected before Pilate, despite Pilate's decision to release him. See, in the NIV version, it says you handed him over to be killed. In other words, you, those standing in front of me, you killed him. You had him killed. And so Peter is contrasting how God sees Jesus as a suffering servant and how these Jewish leaders saw Jesus as a false prophet. Keep in mind that this sermon is taking place merely weeks after Jesus died, rose, and went to heaven. So all those who were there around him would have known this. They would have heard this. And so he, he's now going to point the finger in a big way in verse 14. You rejected this holy righteous one and instead demanded the release of a murderer. 
You, being the Jewish leaders, rejected Jesus, he says. Some versions use the word disowned, and some say denied. He says, you rejected the Holy One, the one who was set apart. You voted for Barabbas. You did a prisoner exchange. You said, release this one and kill that one. This must have been a very painful thing for Peter to say, for after all, he himself had disowned Jesus, hadn't he? But he had been redeemed. Peter is saying, in essence, you disowned and rejected and denied Jesus, the innocent one, and you asked for Barabbas, the guilty one. That's the description of a bad exchange. Have you ever been guilty of a bad exchange? You accepted a false belief instead of a true one. You listened to the wrong voices and not divining the word of truth. I'm afraid we've all been guilty of believing wrong things and perhaps even telling wrong things, perpetuating falsehoods. This is a key point in this passage. Notice Peter is calling their attention to their own guilt. You know, there must be a conviction before a sinner can experience conversion. And this is what Peter is calling to their attention, their conviction. It's as if the temple has now become a courtroom and Peter is laying out his evidence. And here is, here's the case he's saying, there has been a miracle and you are witnesses to the miracle. And two plain old fishermen could not have performed this miracle without God's help. So you, the ones who denied the authority of Christ and had him killed, are now once again denying the power of God. See, I think this gives new meaning to deniers. <laughs> they were deniers. He continues with the claim that they killed the very one who gave us life, Jesus. Well, he goes on to say that in verse 15, you killed the author of life. Wow, that must have been pretty hard to hear and to, for him to say. Uh, he says, the, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this pack, past uh, fact. So Peter moves right on to the resurrection. It, he, he's really good at creating these contrasts. He has said, you killed Jesus, but God raised him. Then he brings them right to the group of witnesses. Uh, so he says, God, you know, he's resurrected. You know it happened. You're a witness to it. It happened a few weeks ago, and you either saw him or you heard from thousands of people who did. Oh, the courage it must have taken for Peter to be so bold in front of men of power, men who believed differently from him, men who were not living in the truth. Oh, that we would all have the courage to speak truth when we are outnumbered or in the presence of powerful people. Verse 16, through faith in the name of Jesus, this man was healed, and you know how crippled he was before. Faith in Jesus' name has healed him before your very eyes. See, Peter takes no credit for the healing. The healing came from his faith in the name of Jesus, the authority of Jesus. After the resurrection, Jesus' name possessed the same power as the name of God. So Peter called on this power, this authority of Jesus to heal the lame man. Now he's, he's made, that he's made this accusation and the claims of healing, Peter's tone 
will begin to change. So he has laid out that soft piece of bread and brought them in as all lovers of God. And then he put in that tough meat, that uncomfortable hard truth, and now he's going to add that final piece of soft bread to the sandwich in a positive statement, a way to move forward. In verse 17, look at how he does it, the word friends. Friends, I realize that what you and your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance. These men had been guilty of an enormous crime. Yet Peter is showing the tenderness of his heart in addressing them still as his friends. He didn't repeatedly berate them or damn them. He, he even said they did what they did out of ignorance. He, he may be alluding to the Old Testament distinction between willful sins and sins done in ignorance. Jesus prayed for those who crucified him, saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Verse 18 says, But God was fulfilling what all the prophets had foretold about the Messiah, that he must suffer these things. God was doing what he said he would do. He was sending a suffering servant, the Messiah, and that's what his purpose was. So he again calls Jesus the suffering servant. And next, Peter gives them a call to action. See, he's laid out his case. He's called to their attention, their role in Jesus' death. Now he's wanting them not to continue in their disbelief in the power of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Verse 19, now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. So he says, therefore, repent and turn. Biblical repentance means that one changes his thinking and his mind about what will save him from his sin. To repent means that you come to terms with the fact <coughs> that only Jesus Christ can save from sin and get you into a relationship with God. So there, there needed to be a change of mind a change of direction, a 180-degree turn. He, he took, they needed to go in the other direction and go consistently, no going back and forth. We, when we repent and we turn, we stay the course, rejecting sin. And when we do so, God will erase the sins. The Greek word for wipe away means completely cover over, to blot it out to cover it up so that it is gone. You know, back then they would write either on papyrus or vellum. And, and these were fairly expensive. And so they did not want to waste any. But ancient ink had no acid in it. And so the, the ink did not sink into the paper but stayed on the surface. And so sometimes a scribe would use papyrus or vellum that had already been written on. And when he did that, he took a sponge and he wiped off the writing. Because it was only on the surface of the ink, of the paper, the ink could be wiped out as if it had never been. And God, in his amazing grace, does the same for us. He completely erases the record of our sins so that it as if it had never been. And so he's encouraging those who were listening to him to do the same, to turn, repent, 
and God would forgive them for all their sins. And look at what he says will happen in verse 20. I think this is a beautiful turn in the story. Then times of refreshment will come upon, come from the presence of the Lord. And we will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah. See, as a result of repenting and turning, you will be refreshed. Peter wants them to know that with repentance and acceptance of Christ comes an eternal time of refreshment when the Messiah returns. This kingdom will be, first of all, a kingdom of refreshment. It's everlasting refreshment. Now, on earth, they will also experience times of refreshing in their hearts when they live in fullness of the truth of the saving and healing power of Christ. Biblical theme of refreshment has both physical and spiritual meanings. The Bible refers to refreshment through rest on the Sabbath, through cool water, through soothing music, and through encouraging fellowship with a body of believers. I hope that you're hearing through that how we too can have times of refreshment on earth. Verse 21, for he must Remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. See, that word restoration means to return something to its original state. What was the original state of this earth? This final restoration means that Jesus is going to come again and there will be complete removal of sin from the world and will go back to the way it was originally in the beautiful garden. Then he reminds what Moses said in verse 22, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Listen carefully to everything he tells you. Then Moses said, Anyone who will not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from God's people. Peter's quoting there from another reading that the listeners would be familiar with. It's in Deuteronomy 18:15. The Lord your God will raise up for you that prophet and the prophet, you must listen to this prophet. Peter has boldly proclaimed that there is good news for those who believe, but those who do not will be completely cut off from uh, God's people. That was a warning he was giving to the people. Well, verse 24 says, starting with Samuel, every prophet must Every prophet spoke about what is happening today. You are the children of those prophets. You are included in the covenant God promised to our ancestors. For God said to Abraham, through your descendants, all the families on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant Jesus, he sent him first to you, people of Israel, to bless you by turning each of you back from your sinful ways. You see, once again, Peter's connecting the men of Israel, those Jews listening to him, with the great genealogical chain from the time of Abraham. He says, you are privileged people. You were chosen by God. And he wants them to realize they are chosen once again to be the first converts in the new covenant. And this is where he ends his sermon. Well, unlike the sermon on the day of Pentecost that Peter preached, when 3,000 came to faith in Christ, we don't know how many came to believe in salvation through Jesus Christ. Immediately after he says this last statement in his sermon, the guard comes for him and John 
And to hear the rest of the story, you'll need to come back next week to hear that. But we do want to move on to what I think is the most important part of this of reading scripture. And that's, what does it mean to me? What does it apply to me? And I want us to look at that. And I want us to think about how Peter had looked intently into the eyes of that lame man and realized God was calling him to a divine appointment. When the healed man then ran into the temple and was holding on to Peter and John, God gave Peter his next assignment for the day, an opportunity to preach the story of salvation. I just think about how Peter accepted those divine appointments. How tuned in are we to our divine appointments? Do you have an appointment book? Well, I have a phone calendar that I use to remind me of my appointments and meetings for specific days. And I also have a hard copy calendar. And I also use the reminder app on my phone to help keep me keep up with my daily responsibilities. But do I also need to have a reminder to look for my divine appointments? Or should I be on autopilot looking at every encounter every day? I pray for God to help me to be open to the giving and receiving of his blessings each day. And it really hurts my heart to think I might not be aware of opportunities because I'm just not looking. Sometimes we're clueless about our own opportunities. Sometimes we haven't even asked God to light the way and show us the opportunities. And then sometimes we're scared to take the opportunities It's good to remember that God prepares us for our divine appointments. We read in Ephesians 3 verse 20, Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. But let's remember the importance of Peter's divine appointment with the Jewish leaders and how God was able to do a mighty work through him. These men had been living under false pretenses. They were not living in truth that God had sent the Messiah and it was Jesus. They had been blinded. They had been living in ignorance. And then they were astonished, dumbfounded when they witnessed the healing of the lame man. Lame man. Peter was unlocking truth. And when they witnessed this healing, it must have rattled the blindness loose. It must have grabbed their attention in the stuck place in their lives. That's why they were staring at Peter and John, and I'm certain their mouths were agape. Has this ever happened in your life? You witness something or experience something that shakes the truth loose? You have an enlightening moment. You're illuminated by truth through something that you see or hear or experience. You stand shocked and amazed and speechless. What you thought was true no longer seems true. You had a firm belief about something, something you thought was a biblical truth, something you thought you understood about God, something you had read in Scripture but had misunderstood, something revealed to you through an encounter or sermon or Bible study or through your own study of the word. And when the truth was revealed, you become rattled and disturbed and shocked and somewhere between disbelief and belief, 
And then you realize you had been wrong all along. It's really hard to admit that, isn't it? It's hard to accept, but the truth is what sets us free. It's liberating. When we realize the truth of God's word, the truth about who God is, we are released from the bondage of wrong thinking, from the fear or anger we had been displaying because we just didn't know the truth. The truth that God is always good and does not make bad things happen. The truth that I am to live in a daily personal relationship with God. The truth that I am responsible for reflecting Christ in all my thoughts, words, emotions, and actions. The truth that I am to daily examine myself. The truth that I am to embrace embrace and study scripture as God's divine word. The truth that I am to demonstrate the fruit of his spirit. The truth that I am to live in my God-given strengths and not in my weaknesses of a critical spirit or a bossy attitude, a judgmental heart, a stubbornness, pride, anger, bitterness, or lack of forgiveness, or fill in the blank. The truth that I am to believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and he is the way to the Father. The truth that I am to live in the fullness of joy. When we recognize truth and we claim truth and live in truth, we are to live in the fullness of joy. We are to look forward to an eternal time of refreshing that will never end. Acts 3.20 reminds us of that. Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord. In this life, we must get refreshed today and tomorrow and the next day and on and on. But eternally, it is a life of refreshment. One of the great joys in living in the truth is living refreshed. Where and how do we get refreshed? Isaiah 44.3 tells us God is the refresher and provides nourishment by pouring out his spirit on us. The Holy Spirit is able to fill up our hungry and dry hearts. When our souls are refreshed, it's like water is being poured into a thirsty land. See, without refreshment, my soul is dry and thirsty. When I'm not refreshed, I become discouraged. I become overworked and overtired, and I tend to live in the weaknesses of my, my personality. But God wants us to live refreshed by his spirit. How? Come up with your own list, but these are some things that help me to refresh my spirit Number one, savor. That means to slow down and live at half speed and enjoy his creations and all of his created beings. Number two, to play. Number three, laugh a little. Four, spend time with friends. Number five, to love on my family. Six, to read. Number seven, to waste time with Jesus without an agenda. See, I fall into that pattern of having to study and read and dig in and research. But I refresh my spirit when I just cling to and savor his words. When I just spend time praising him and worshiping him and singing to him. 
Number eight, to pray out loud. Number nine, to take a walk. Number 10, to sing. And number 11, to bless somebody else. Proverbs eleven twenty five tells us that whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. You see, living in truth and refreshing our souls leads to sowing and reaping. This is the message that Peter was preaching. He said, leave behind the old, live in the new, get refreshed, and be a blessing to others by keeping your divine appointments. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for our lesson today, our lesson from Peter, who was so accountable, who, was, who savored time and kept his divine appointments. Help us to be focused on that today. Help us to be obedient to your word. Help us to learn the truths of your words and then help us to live in a time of refreshment where we will renew our spirit and then pass on the blessings through our own divine appointments. It is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.